The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word, if you will. Turn to Matthew chapter 18 and verse 21 to the end of the chapter. Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to the end of the chapter. This is the word of God. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him. And forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused, and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servant saw what had taken place, They were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to the master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also... My heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Amen. Let's pray. We ask now, Almighty God, that you would be pleased to work in our hearts, that we would hear your word, that we would hear your word with faith and repentance. We would plead with you, Lord God, that you would create in us clean and forgiving hearts, that we might be right with you in our actions. We plead with you now, Lord, that you would speak to us, acknowledging our great need. Speak to us and grant us ears to hear what your Spirit has to say, for we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, our Lord has been teaching his disciples and us as the church how to deal with conflict. And first of all, he taught about dealing with conflict through the gentle and humble confrontation of sin. But now our Lord turns us to another alternative in dealing with sin. That is the act of forgiveness. Forgiveness. And notice, just from the outset, how much space our Lord devotes to teaching about uh, the confrontation of sin. 
compared to how much space he devotes to the forgiveness of sins. Inclusive in verses, we have six verses on the confrontation of sin. Inclusive in, on the forgiveness of sin, we have 15 verses, nearly three times the amount of verses and teaching on forgiveness than there are on confrontation. I think that teaches us many things, but certainly this. For the Christian, forgiveness ought to be our usual work and confrontation our unusual work. Forgiveness ought to be our usual work as Christians and confrontation ought to be our unusual work. And naturally, as we seek to forgive those who have sinned against us, we understand that that whole activity, the disposition, the activity of forgiveness is predicated, is founded upon God's own forgiveness of us. We forgive because we have been forgiven and we forgive in the manner that God has forgiven us. To pose a question to us from the outset, if we've been forgiven... Are you inclined to forgive? If you've been forgiven, are you inclined to forgive? And our Lord teaches us on the issue of forgiveness in four ways. First of all, there's a question posed to him in verse 21. Then he gives an answer in verse 22. Then he gives an illustration of his answer in verses 23 to 34. And then fourthly, he gives an explanation in verse 35. A question, an answer, an illustration, and an explanation. And those are our points this morning. The doctrine of forgiveness uh, brought about by Peter's question uh, of verse 21. Peter comes to him and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? The question is important both because of its context and because of its content. In terms of context, we've already seen several times over, chapter 18 begins by our Lord teaching us about how we should think and treat our brethren in the church. We are to have a mind of humility. And those who have a mind of humility count others better than themselves are ready to repent, are ready to forgive. Even when our Lord teaches on confrontation, verse 15 following, even there forgiveness implicitly is a central element of the confrontation of sin. Why do we bring a sin to a brother? Well, they've offended us. We want to be reconciled. To be reconciled, there must be an admission of sin and the forgiveness of sins. To go to a brother who has sinned, to win them back, is to forgive them. So it's not confrontation or forgiveness. It's confrontation which should lead to forgiveness. Or we just simply forgive sin. That's the immediate context of our Lord's teaching. The content of Peter's question is also very important. As we read it, perhaps, like me, you got the impression that Peter is is struggling with this idea of the practice of forgiveness. How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? You can almost hear a a kind of pent-up tension or frustration in the words. I, I don't think we need to be too hard on Peter. It's a genuine inquiry. 
But there's a clear tone, I believe, to his question, and the tone is limiting. He wants to limit the number of times and occasions he is to offer forgiveness to a brother who has sinned against him. He says, as many as seven, which when you think about it is quite a bit. If one person is consistently sinning against you that you need to forgive them seven times, that's probably a difficult relationship. Peter says, as many as seven. I think we all know the reality of this, don't we? There are persons or a person in, I'm sure, all our lives who at some point just consistently seem to cause us trouble. How many times must this person sin against me, must let me down, and I forgive that person and restore him or her? How many times must I forgive this person? How many times must my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Think on that. There are a number of inhibitors to forgiveness. Things that get in the way of us forgiving an offending party. The first thing is this. It's the pride and the folly of the offender. The one who's committed the sin. And pride and folly is played out in their lack of repentance. How hard is it to forgive someone when they refuse to repent of something? They won't admit they're wrong. And yet it's still possible. It is possible to forgive someone even if they are unrepentant. But it makes the process very difficult. (laughs) Yes, the pride and folly of the offender is a barrier to forgiveness. But the pride and folly of the offended can also be a barrier to forgiveness. The injured party themselves becomes an injuring party because they will not grant forgiveness to a brother or sister. And we've seen it happen. Somebody can attach all manner of ungodly requirements. Well, to to receive forgiveness, you must do this, 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 and this. Not required by God's word, but by me. The offended party. And Jesus makes us ask the question of ourselves. Am I a forgiving person? Do I hold grudges? You may well have been truly injured. I'm certain you have. Where lies your heart is where our Lord is going to take us. We are to forgive from our heart, we're told. Where lies your heart? Is it a heart disposed to forgiveness, or is it a heart disposed to getting a pound of flesh in the process of forgiveness? And we ought to state also, when we're thinking of forgiveness, that there can still be consequences even for those who are forgiven. Forgiveness does not universally remove the consequences of an action. And both divine forgiveness and human forgiveness both play out in that manner. There can still be consequences. David repented of his sin with Bathsheba, but still lost his son. The thief that was forgiven on the cross still died on the cross. He didn't come down from the cross because he put his faith in Christ. He still died for his crimes. Faith in Christ removes the eternal barriers between us and God. It removes the eternal consequences of our sin. It doesn't always remove the temporal consequences. Will we forgive our brother or sister? How many times should it be? Should it be seven, says Peter? 
Our Lord provides an answer, verse 22, our second consideration. The answer, Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Peter's thinking, as many as seven? I mean, seven's a good number in Scripture. We know that, don't we? It's the number of perfection and completion. And perhaps Peter's thinking, yes, this is, this is a grand number. Seven times I shall forgive But our Lord dismisses him completely, not seven times, but 70 times seven. In the Greek, Jesus' reply to Peter is abrupt. I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. A shocking answer. And without further explanation, Jesus just dives straight then into the parable of the unforgiving servant. But pause for a minute and think on this 70 times 7 answer. Clearly Jesus is not setting before us a literal number, 490. He's not setting before us that number of times we ought to forgive our brother or our sister. As if we've done it 490 times, then we can go back to holding grudges. Of course he's not saying that. No, our Lord is setting before us the number of times we forgive our brother or sister must be innumerable, without number. The Christian ought to be ready to forgive and frequent in our forgiveness if necessary. If we can put it this way, forgiveness unlimited. Forgiveness unlimited It is to be a way of life, a disposition of heart in the Christian. Now, why does our Lord answer this way, 70 times 7? What does he have in mind? Well, he knows the end from the beginning. And scriptures which would come after our Lord speak peculiarly about our relationship to to forgiveness. We are to forgive in this unlimited fashion because God in Christ forgave us. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's the paradigm. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You. That is to say, our forgiveness of others, as Christians, is based on the fact that God has forgiven us. If that's a reality in your life, dear friend, then forgiveness of others who injure you ought not be too great a task in your life. We forgive freely because we have been forgiven freely. We forgive an unlimited number of times because we have been forgiven, as it were, for an unlimited number of sins. But the second reason why we are to forgive in this fashion is most interesting to my mind. In Matthew's Gospel, the order of what we've just said, God forgives, so we forgive, that order is reversed. Think back to Matthew chapter 6. After the Lord's Prayer... We read this, Matthew 6, 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. To reverse the order, 
And again, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It's the very same as the last verse of our chapter. So also my Heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Matthew, in Matthew's Gospel, our Lord presents our act of forgiveness as a condition for God's forgiving us. That's the opposite of what Paul says in Ephesians. You should forgive as God in Christ forgave you. Now you must forgive so that you will be forgiven. Are Jesus and Paul at odds? By no means. They're both speaking of the same side of the coin of forgiveness. One about the foundation and one about the evidence. The foundation is this, if we have been forgiven, we will be forgiving people. And we will practice forgiveness. And that's a manifestation, a revelation that God has and will forgive us in both ways. Our forgiveness is to be full and free and unlimited. Because that's what God did for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are called to be holy like our Father in heaven. We are called to be Christ-like. Friend, we are not to hold grudges. We are to forgive. We are not to limit our forgiveness. But genuinely, from our hearts, set aside offenses and injuries to ourselves. Calvin writes, We ought by our gentleness to assist those who have fallen to rise again. And certainly we ought to imitate the goodness of our Heavenly Father who meets sinners at a distance to invite them to salvation. That's our disposition. As God was towards us, so ought we to be towards each other. If we sing, and we do sing it, the vilest offender that truly believes that moment through Jesus a pardon receives. And if we are the vilest offender, which we are, then we ought to be ready to give that pardon to others also. And there is a great incongruity. It's out of place for a Christian to name the name of Christ and to be unforgiving. And that's revealed in the parable that our Lord teaches in verses 23 following. I'm going to be very brief on the parable. We have a master and two servants. Uh, The master calls account of all his servants. And the first servant comes before his master and he owes him the enormous sum of 10,000 talents. Commentators say that's about 200 years of the annual labor of the average laborer's wage. I mean clearly this is some kind of big business deal that's gone wrong. 200 years of the average worker's salary, 10,000 talents. And he can't pay. Things have gone badly wrong for him. And so his master says, "Well, you'll be delivered over to the jailer, you and all your family until you can pay what is your due. But we read this in verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, begging him, 
Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And our Lord recalls the master's response. It says he had pity on him. He had pity on him and released him and forgave him the debt. Ten thousand talents. He forgave him the debt. He saw, the master saw the servant's plight and his heart was moved towards him because he had a debt which he could not repay. And he forgave him. He wrote the debt off. Gone. In this case, he's free from the most pressing consequence of failure to pay the debt, imprisonment. There would still have been consequences in his life. Uh, He probably would never receive this kind of business loan again. He lives with the reality that he is a servant, a man who cannot pay his debts, who's been unwise financially, who's got himself in too deep. But the big debt is gone. It's been removed. Now, that same servant who's been forgiven this enormous debt goes out and finds another servant who owes him, we read there, 100 denarii. 100 denarii is about 100 days' wages. It's a fraction that is owed to him that he owed to the master. A fraction. And he finds this fellow servant and he is utterly merciless towards him. Verse 28. It says, seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. servant pleads for mercy what does he do he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt it's going to take a genius to work out what kind of man this servant is he's the kind of person who's always taking never giving he thinks that one set of rules applies to him but another set to other people He uses people, he uses situations to his own profit. And there's not a shred of compassion within him. In the parable, the fellow servants, verse 31, and I'm sure all of us today, we can see the utter inconsistency of his experience with his master and his own behavior towards others. I'm sure even the young children here today who are listening can think and hear of this man and say, he's unfair, he's unjust, he's unkind. The servants draw that same conclusion. Verse 31, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. They saw the injustice. They saw the ingratitude. They saw the mercilessness, the lack of compassion that the servant showed to the other servant. And so too did the master. Verse 34. The master's anger. He delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. The master says to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? That's the paradigm. 
as you received, should you not also have given? And so we see in this text, in this parable, where injustice was meted out to the one servant, justice later prevailed. Where the forgiven was unforgiving, he was made to face the terrible consequences of his own behavior. That's what our Lord says will happen. Quote verse 35, to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And that's our Lord's explanation, verse 35. So also my father will do to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What happened to the unjust servant? This is what will happen to us if we are unforgiving. Jesus is saying this, we're not going to be thrown into prison. We'll be cast into the eternal damnation of hell. If our life is not characterized by at least an attempt to forgive and by forgiveness itself, we will be thrown into the jail of outer darkness. Because it's a testimony that there is no faith in our hearts. There has been no reception of forgiveness from God if we are not also prepared to forgive. You see, God is the master in this parable. The Father is. God is the master. God is the judge. And scripture tells us he will render to each according to his deed. With what measure you measure, said our Lord, it will be measured unto you. The way you treat people will be the way you are treated. And if it's faithless and unforgiving, then you shall not receive forgiveness. It's very clear here, the claims of being a Christian while being unwilling or unable to forgive make those claims very hollow. They're false claims. And it's a claim which won't allow you to stand before Almighty God. To be unforgiving reveals that you have not been forgiven by God. But what's also very clear in this text when it comes to the master is not just that he is a master of justice, but that he's a master of great pity and mercy and tremendous grace. For we read that, do we not? The master, verse 27, out of pity for him, released the servant and forgave him the debt. Easy to pass over that moment, isn't it? But the point is here that we are to behave like God behaves towards us. This is how God has behaved towards us. He is our master. Out of great pity for you, dear Christian, he has forgiven your debt. The debt of your sins, of my sins, he's cancelled the debt. Paul will say he's nailed it to the cross. The master is one who has been owed everything by us. We have a debt of righteousness to God which is incalculable in its value. If I can paraphrase the words of William Hendrickson at this point, he says, We are all God's debtors. 
None of us can pay that debt. Nevertheless, the debt must be paid. And it is only by God's provision of mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his life of perfect righteousness, in his death, which was also a death of perfect righteousness and of taking away the sins of God's people and his resurrection from the dead and ascension into glory, that is the only way for your debt to be paid to God, dear friend. And I want to say to you here today, if you're outside of Christ, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, your debt is outstanding and it must be paid. And the payment of sin, scripture says, is death in this life and the life to come. That's what you will pay if you're not in Christ. If Christ Jesus, by his life and death, has not paid the debt for you, you will pay the debt yourself. Far better to have an older brother who comes in, as it were, at the last moment and pays the debt for you. Blessed Savior, blessed debt-paying Jesus. Oh, we must turn to that Savior. And then we can look the Master in the face and say to him, Master, I have not paid the debt myself, but it has been paid in full. It has been done. It is finished. Jesus Christ has paid the immeasurable debt of the sins of his people. Come to Christ. Trust in Christ. Those of you who love him, renew your love and trust for him this day. And here once again, there is no debt to pay for the Christian. Which is a good job because you could never pay it anyway. There is no debt to pay. My sins, not in part, but the whole, are nailed to the cross and I bear them no more. That's why we can say it is well with our souls. We bear them no more. It should then be the case, having received that amazing blessing of the forgiveness of sins then it should not be too difficult for us to cancel the debt of others' sins against us. Friends, the unforgiven are unforgiving. But the forgiven must be forgiving. As our Lord says here, how often should we forgive our brother? Not 70 times. But 70 times 7, God grant us the grace that we might be a forgiving people to the praise of his glorious name. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God and Father in heaven, we magnify your name, you who are holy. The great God who has forgiven us our debts. Oh Lord, there is none like you. We bow in your presence. We give you thanks. Teach us, oh Lord. Teach us the ways of truth and the ways of righteousness. And may we be like you, forgiving those who have 
offended against us freely in an unlimited fashion. For we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.